As far as this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Acts. We're going to finish Paul's first missionary journey. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. After I'm done today, um, we're going to hopefully uh, have some time for some discussion. I've tried to frame up today's message with discussion on the front end and discussion on the back end so we can keep thinking through these things. I've also asked Marcus Rowley, is Marcus in here? Somewhere. Um, that uh, I've asked him if the next couple weeks he could um, come in and just really lay out um, a message on what is the gospel, what is justification, because we keep seeing Paul and Barnabas go to these different locations and they're preaching the gospel. This is the message they keep bringing. And so I asked Marcus if he could come next week and the following week, and he's going to do Romans 3, 21 to 26, and just lay out what was Paul's gospel that he was preaching. And so I think that'll be an encouragement just to highlight what's going on in our Acts study and uh, be sweet to hear from Marcus a couple weeks in a row. So that's what we're going to do the next couple weeks after today. As far as our time in Acts 13 and 14, Paul's missionary journey, just as we're, we're beginning, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in the text, but um, I wanted to just maybe begin um, hearing from you guys a little bit on uh, some of the ways maybe um, Acts 13 and 14, as we've been studying, Paul's missionary journey has encouraged you, ways it's challenged you. I'm going to share in a moment my heart on why I love being in a section like this. But I'd love to hear from you a little bit. What, what has Acts 13 and 14 done for your view of missions, guys? I've kind of taught it as conviction-building moments as we look at the first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, of our New Testament. What has this solidified in your mind? What's it encouraged? You know, um, what's been on your hearts as we've been studying this? We've been five or six weeks in it. If you could, do you guys remember the messages? <laughs> it's been some time. Yeah. One thing that was encouraging to me um, when we were in Acts 13, mm -hmm. whatever that was, um, was. <laughs> hey, was that a dig? <laughs> when we were in Acts 13, whenever that was. <laughs> It's Pastor, I don't remember. Or it's, Pastor, you take forever to get through sections. I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, but was in verse um, 36 where it says, Where David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Yeah. Um, and I remember the point being made that, and it was kind of like, it wasn't like the main point. Yeah. Much, but yeah. Um, just that, you know, death comes when we have served our purpose. And that's yeah. really yeah. And really, Paul and Barnabas are living that way right now. They're serving their purpose as a God until God says they're no longer immortal. So that's sweet. Yeah, Rebecca. I was encouraged last week at the end where they, Paul and Barnabas suffered persecution. Mm. I was referencing last week to the Columbine High School shootings of 99. Was wow. Wisconsin. Yeah. I, she actually walked out in a video series challenged her killers why they were so and she was actually shot by one of Yeah. Yeah, there is something about when we see people reach out in love in the face of hostility and rage and anger from others that does something inside of us that... Well, it demonstrates to us something that if, it's, if you're reaching out for Christ, it is the only it is really only possible if you know Christ. Uh, I watched this week on that point. Um, what's that gentleman's name that forgave his brother's um, 
his brother's killer, and then shared Christ with her from the stand and then went and hugged her. Did you guys see that? You should go look up that video. Uh, I'm for, I, I regret that I forget his name. It's online. But it was that off-duty police officer that went into the wrong house and shot this gentleman's brother. And on the stand, after she was convicted 10 years, he basically shared the gospel with her. Um, and then asked the judge if he could go give her a hug. <laughs> and you'll have trouble not crying through that moment. And you think about that. How could a guy who his brother was gunned down seemingly, and she's been convicted of, um, of a crime, murder, reach out in love and hug her brother's murderer and share the good news of Jesus Christ? And only Christ can do that in the heart. The, the other piece, and that, that may have been because of the brother, but then the judge comes down with a Bible, right? With a, her Bible. Oh right? my and goodness! Yeah. Gives to her, hugs her, and says, "This is what you need." Yeah, yeah. So that right there can only come through the power of the gospel. And interestingly enough, in our section today, that's going to come up like three times for Paul and Barnabas. They're going to be treated with aggressive hostility and love their aggressors and preach Christ to them, regardless of what it costs them. Pretty amazing. See, that's, that's always encouraging me when I see people suffer well by the power of God. Yeah. Anything else in particular as it relates? Yeah, George. Um, I would say the biggest thing is just in our culture how we missions and just being reminded through the scriptures of it's men that are firm and sent out in the local church to do that, to share the gospel and to follow up with people that we send the gospel with. I'm going to go on a mission trip. Yeah. Share truth or help you and then yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's been so meaningful for me. Jordan was just saying missions is about the church. Men are sent from the church for the church to see churches planted, established, elders raised up, and then those churches replicate and send out more people. I mean, you could say it this way, and maybe I'll just get into my burden for why I love this section is I think the understanding of missions today and the way we define missions is probably one of the most um, significant illustrations on how poorly people understand the church. Missions is just one example of how much this generation does not understand church life. We talk about missions as if it's separate from the local church. And yet, with the scriptures just being in Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch to see churches established after preaching the gospel. We're going to see them today go back and strengthen those churches, help elders be raised up in those churches so it has called, qualified, gifted leadership, and then those churches go out to plant more churches. So, I might even say this, today our understanding of the church is maybe most significantly known that we actually talk about missions as if it's something different than local church life. All missions is, is local churches somewhere else, typically cross-culturally, where you're seeing local churches planted and established. And so anything, any, I'd say this to you, any conversation we have about missions that doesn't revolve around the local church, is not about the local church, is not men being sent by local churches, and not local churches being established, is a conversation about missions foreign to your Bible. God wants us to understand missions in the context of the local church. And I was at the PBA study with the group the other day, and Ryan said to me at the end, I mean, it's like the ultimate softball to ask a, a pastor. He said, could you just share your heart, pastor? Share what burdens you most about um, our generation. And you know, when you're, a, when you're a pastor, you always have a host of things on your heart, and sometimes you can't even pull them all together. But then Ryan said, you know, like Paul in Acts 20, when he goes to the Ephesians elders and unloads his burden to them about what he's most concerned about. And 
So we went to Acts 20 and I talked to the group. And I, but I basically said this, guys. I said, my generation as well, your generation, we love independence. We love autonomy. And we hate the idea of being under something or being organized or being scrutinized. And we like the idea of being able to self-express however we want. And Paul tells the Ephesians elders, first thing you do is give up on self-trust. Watch out for yourself. You can't trust you. And so then I told the group, I think the greatest way your generation trusts yourself too much is you neglect the local church where God calls you to be as a protection from self. And then I talked to the group about how much I'm burdened that this generation knows so little about what it means to be a vital part of a local church. Well, that is so germane to a discussion on missions because were you to be in the book of Acts, everything for these new believers revolved around them seeing a church come to their area and them having shepherds and them being able to use their gifts and them being able to gather. Casualness about local church, it was precious to them because it was coming to them from God and they couldn't imagine life outside of it. And so I think when we get into Acts 13 and 14, it's a, it's a subtle rebuke for us in our day about how much we sometimes lack excitement about missions because we lack excitement about local church life. People that are excited about missions love local church life because they're thrilled to think what someone else is now getting in a foreign place that they get here. In fact, when we finish our section today, Antioch, who sent Paul and Barnabas, when they come back, they break out in rejoicing to hear what God was doing where other believers were hearing the gospel and more churches were established. Anytime you're in a discussion about missions that doesn't have to do with local church life, it is not a biblical discussion of missions. And that's what I kind of want to dive back into today. And we're going to finish out our time. And it, it is this, beloved. We've been looking at conviction-building occasions from Paul's first missionary journey. And what I'm going to do in this narrative, Luke here drops down into three different places. He drops down into Paul and Barnabas going to Iconium, and then to Lystra, and then to Derbe. And really, in summary fashion, Luke just gives a couple details of what he does at each place. And it's the same things that Paul and Barnabas are doing everywhere that they went. So what I want to do is drop down into these moments, draw out some convictions we can derive from that, and then at the end of the day, I'm going to revisit that, and I want us to talk a little bit about what we can learn from this first missionary journey. By way of review, if you remember, we've seen three conviction-building moments up to this point. Missionaries are affirmed and sent out by local churches. We saw that in the beginning. Second conviction-building occasion is missionaries preach the Word of God and it polarizes and it plants. We talked about how the message that they preached was the Word of God, that missions wasn't about social work, that missions wasn't about soup kitchens, that missions was about seeing souls come to Christ and added to churches. And then we saw last time, missionaries stand and preach no matter the audience nor the cost. And we looked at what happened in Poseidon Antioch. That's a different Antioch than the one they're going back to. And you remember, we saw that no matter who was in front of them, God-fearing Greek, Jew, or Gentile outside the church, has never been around the church, they were just wanting to preach Christ. So, let's walk through some more. We're going to cover all of chapter 14 in our time today. And I think it'll be a really fun time. So, here's the fourth conviction-building occasion that we're going to look at. A true missionary knows this. Missionaries, here's the conviction we need to hold. Missionaries know they will face opposition. 
Missionaries know they will face opposition. Why, beloved? I'll quote John Anderson from when he preached this section. The gospel is magnetic. The same gospel that attracts, detracts. I mean, even in this room, you think about it today. I'm going to preach one single truth and a set of subordinate ideas from this passage. The Spirit of God is going to take that into your hearts. And there's going to be those of you that it attracts you to the Word of God as the Spirit of God softening your heart. And it's going to be, there may be those of you in this room that it detracts, that it can even make you chafe or harden against it. The same, as the Puritans say, the same sun that softens the ice hardens the clay. True missionaries, when they're sent, know that they're going to face opposition from a majority and be accepted by a minority. Now, just consider, we're going to go to three locations today, and they're going to see this happen, it seems, though we don't know a lot about Derby. But we know this, opposition is coming because the gospel is magnetic. Store that in your mind. We're going to talk about that at the end. I want you to first see it from the text. So, let's start here in Acts 14. They've just left Poseidon Antioch. You remember, if you look at verse 50 of chapter 13, they had, or 49 and 50, there was basically an uprising against them. They instigated persecution, verse 50 of chapter 13, drove them out of the district. What did those men do? Their hearts were hard. They shook off their feet. And they went on continually, 52, in the joy of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. Iconium is now 90 miles away. So guess what? These men said, okay, we're going to our next location. Time to go for a little walk. <laughs> a long walk, it seems. And they land in Iconium and they do what true missionaries do. They don't go there, beloved, to find ways to soften the message. They go there with love in their hearts, a love for Christ, and missions is always about the same thing. Hearing, excuse me, seeing souls know the message of the gospel and be converted and added to a church. So what do these missionaries do? They come to preach and we're going to see the magnetic operation of the gospel and that a true missionary knows he's going to face opposition. So notice verse 1 of chapter 14. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. Paul and Barnabas, they go in. They're in modern-day Turkey here. They enter into the synagogue to preach in Iconium. Some people say they think the population may have had as, many, as much as uh, one million people in the outlying areas and around the area. So you've got Jews that are coming to worship. These are not saved Jews. These are those still looking for the Messiah. And then notice, they spoke in a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. So they step in, they get an opportunity to preach. What happens? The first magnetic response to the gospel. God softens people. You've got God-fearing Greeks. Those are those that were attached to Judaism. And you've got true ethnic Jews. A whole bunch of people are saved. Now, you hear that and you're like, oh, that's cool. But just think for a second. A miracle just happened. A missionary was sent, walked into a place, preached the eternal message, and God changed a whole bunch of people's eternity. If Paul was here today and he said, i got to tell you about Iconium and what God did. I walked into the synagogue. I was going to preach. I left the, the results to God. And God softened a bunch of hard-hearted Jews and these, these false converts, these professing uh, Greeks to Judaism that were lost. God helped them see the Messiah and loads of them were born again. That response to the gospel is a miracle. This is what they would have reported back to Antioch about when they went back home. It says there at the end of verse 1, He spoke in such a manner. Some people have tried to make that 
you know, that Paul was so innovative and he had so much rhetoric and he was so insightful that somehow he was able to woo people in, which I read a couple commentaries on it and I thought that's just silly. The power is in the message. The man is an instrument. He spoke with clarity and boldness and God used it. That's all you need to take from verse 1. Notice verse 2. The magnetic response continues, but now we see detraction. We saw attraction because the Spirit of God was working. Now we see detraction. Verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved, so there were those that heard the message, listen, beloved, and they were sitting there and they were listening that Jesus offers them forgiveness of sin. This is like that loved one or that friend that you're looking at and you're preaching to and you're offering them the hope in Christ that they could turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And they got the skeptical look on their face and they're listening and they're not sure. And then when you're done and you tell them they need to repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, they're like, I just don't believe what you're saying. I don't buy it. That's this second group here. The Jews disbelieved. Not only did they disbelieve, they do what every hard heart does when it hates the truth. It doesn't just passively walk away and disbelieve. They must proselytize others to make them feel less guilty in their conscience. You, you understand that. When, when you preach the truth to someone and they get angry, if you're wondering why they go and start chirping to other people, is their conscience is full of guilt. John 16, 8, the Spirit is always convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 3, they hate the light for their deeds will be exposed. If you have people that you preach the truth to and you plead with them and repent, and they reject, just realize over time, it's going to make them angry because of guilt. They don't like the feeling that they have over them, this idea that they're going to pay for their sin and that you believe that about them and you think their life needs to change. So what are they going to do eventually? Find other people they can align themselves with to stand against you. This, by the way, is what they did to kill Jesus. So notice these Jews that disbelieved, they found some of these Gentiles that were attached to Judaism and notice, they stirred up the minds, verse 2, of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. When someone rejects the gospel, they will probably go proselytize other people against you. Some of you have probably seen this in your families, right? I've seen it in mine. You go and you get an opportunity. You're at that dinner table moment. You've been praying for that opportunity and someone asks you a question and your heart's beating and your palms are sweating and they ask you to talk about your life or talk about Christ or some worldview and you're like, oh, this is the moment I've been praying for, but I don't feel very courageous right now. And you get your courage up and you trust God and you pray in the moment and you just lay out the gospel. And a couple people in the family get their nose up about it. They don't like it. They don't think you should talk that way. We shouldn't talk about religion, whatever. And they find some other people in the family. And before you know it, you've got a group of people in your family chirping about how much Darren's changed and how legalistic he's become or how much so-and-so's changed. And all of a sudden, your family environment, you become the black sheep <laughs> when you just wanted to be with everybody. Why does that happen? Because people's consciences that are full of guilt cannot stop until your mouth is stopped. And so they must find others to align with them. This is the human heart when it rejects truth. Sometimes when I'm preaching the truth to someone and they're rejecting, I warn them, if you head down this path, you're going to get harder and harder and harder because that's what the human heart does. The more it suppresses, the more angry it becomes. So notice, verse 2, that's exactly what they did. They stirred up a bunch of people against them, stirred up their minds and embittered them. Interesting, that bitter word group is they become sour and angry towards you. For what? What did Paul and Barnabas and these new believers do? They just wanted to follow Christ. 
This is what happens when you live in a world that's hostile to God. Now, let's just stop for a second. Logically, it seems to me that when I'm reading through a passage and I hear, I just preached and a whole bunch of people got saved, but a whole bunch of other people are really bitter towards me. They're really angry. They're starting to spin false narratives about me. Pretty good chance at this time I'm going to die. <laughs> they may kill me. The next thing it says is, and sometimes you do see this, that the believers move on because of the hardness of people's hearts or to preserve their life, to preach more. You see that happen. But other times, you just read these comments in the text and the grammar Luke uses is it's almost like this. You'd expect it to say, because it was going to be so difficult and so much hostility in ministry, therefore they just moved on. But he uses a conjunction in the Greek that's giving a logical connection. Therefore, in light of the fact that logically, when people are wanting to kill you, you're going to move on, he doesn't do that. He says this, verse 3, Therefore, in light of the fact that people wanted to kill us and we're going to face hostility and it's going to be difficult and ministry is hard and opposition is coming, therefore, they spent a long time there. <laughs> you just think, wow. There was believers that had been saved there and needed to be equipped and no matter how much hostility they were facing, they stayed a long time. Notice, speaking boldly. And we say, I want that, Pastor. When I face hostility and it becomes difficult, I want to speak boldly. How do I do that? Well, they say, with reliance upon the Lord. This wasn't self-strength. This wasn't manufactured by their own ability. They had tapped into spiritual resources, not their own, that gave them the ability to stand. You say, how do I do that, Pastor? How, how do I speak boldly in the face of opposition with reliance upon the Lord? Well, prayer, of course. You know that Paul and Barnabas would have been praying and asking for God's strength. They would have been going to the Scriptures to see God's mandate on their life was for souls. They would have been cultivating in their heart a greater love for souls than they had for their own comfort. And they would have relied upon the Lord, as our sister said earlier, for their own immortality until their time had come. God, I'm going to keep preaching. Seems like you want me here. If I die, then I'm no longer eternal. <laughs> to them, I'm, I'm no, excuse me, I'm an eternal being, but I'm, I'm no longer here on earth. I rely on you for your timing. And notice, they spent a long time there, and notice what they were doing. Testifying to the word of his grace. I like that language, the word of His grace. That is to say, the grace that comes from the gospel and that the word when it comes to you is a grace in your life. And then, miracles were accompanying this because they were apostles and sign gifts were still active and this was a sign that the message was genuine. So notice, end of verse 3. Granting signs and wonders were done by their hands. Therefore, they spent a long time there as verse 3 said. But now, notice verse 4. Remember how I said to you this conviction-building moment is true missionaries know they'll always face opposition? Guess what? Just because they were there and preaching, opposition remains. Notice, but the people of the city were divided. Magnetic, there it is. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Notice now verse 4, the cities involved. This started at the synagogue and now this is in the city. So no longer do they get to walk the streets comfortably. Now when they walk the streets, just envision yourself. You're a new believer. You're with Paul and Barnabas. Guess what? There is now a cost to follow the Messiah. The city is starting to rise up and people are noticing there's two new guys in town. They've got a following. Who are those people that are walking with them? And some people are getting saved and joining them. And others are hostile and angry. Immediately there would have been a cost. You know why 
Christianity is so soft in America. Because you can come to Christ and it costs you nothing. Nothing. What does it cost you? Maybe someone in your family says, I wish you wouldn't do that. I liked you how you were way you were before. Maybe someone looks at you with your Bible and thinks you're weird. Nothing compared to Christianity all over the world and at this time where there was a price tag that came. You know, there's so many less false converts when there's persecution. <laughs> because it costs you to follow Jesus. So the city is divided. The magnetic effects are taking place. We know that hostility comes. And then notice verse 5. And an attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. So apparently they got together, Jews and Gentiles together, and they gathered up and said, let's stop the mouths of these apostles. So at this time, apparently, they felt it was time to go. They stayed as long as they could at that time. Verse 6, notice, they were about to be killed. Hostility had come. They went on the run. Verse 6, they became aware of this pot plot and fled to the cities of Lycania, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now just stop for a second. Beloved, what does this teach us about a true missionary? Their message is the same. Their mission is the same. Even when they face hostility, they don't stop. And true missionaries don't imagine, oh, you know what? I faced hostility, I faced pushback, I faced difficulty, I must be doing something wrong. You know why people burn out in missions? And if you read the statistics, mission statistics are awful. Something like most, I don't even know what the percentage is, you could pull it up, but a large degree of missionaries come back in the first two years. You know why that is? They weren't equipped properly to have a biblical expectation of missions. If you go out and do the mission of Christ, people are going to treat you like Christ. What does Jesus say in John 15? They won't treat you better than they treated me. They persecuted me. They're going to kill me. So guess what? They're going to persecute you. You are just like me when that happens. So what happens then, beloved? I'm just going to lay this. What happens if a missionary goes out and envisions that because they're going to go talk about Jesus, they should have this massive following, the culture should accept them, everything should go well, and they hit a wall and they go nine years with one convert. And everyone else hates them around the area because they keep telling them about Christ. What happens to that person if they don't have a biblical understanding of missions? What happens? Well, what would happen to you? If you expected only success and you faced all this hostility, what would happen to your heart? What would happen? Isolation, discouragement, despair. I didn't think it was supposed to go this way. So you know what missionaries do today? They find a whole bunch of ways to soften <laughs> the sharpness of the gospel, to keep themselves from persecution. And they have a whole bunch of ways to do all kinds of social justice things to keep them from bearing the reproach that comes to true missionaries. Is it wrong to love and serve people? Of course not. Is it wrong to go meet needs in a community and society for the sake of the gospel? Of course not. But a true missionary knows, and we must have this conviction, and these men had it, that opposition is guaranteed because the gospel's magnetic. So Luke's dropping us down in and showing us that. So now to the next location. That was Iconium. Now verse 8. Notice, he goes to Lystra. A little bit further in the surrounding region, the Scalation region. So if we were in a missions report, it's a Sunday missionary day. We've called up Paul. He says, okay, that was Iconium. I know that was crazy. We faced hostility. God saved people in a little bit. I'm going to tell you, I go back there and put elders in that church and establish them. It's awesome. God's doing a work there, even in persecution. 
But I got to tell you about my next stop because God did an incredible thing. And then I faced some more opposition and it was hard. <laughs> but God's still working. And so here's missionary Paul. He says, let me tell you about Lystra, my next stop. It'd be like us saying, if in our day, it'd be like, you know, Matt Johnston coming up here, who's our, you know, missionary in Italy and saying, so first we went to Rome and here's what happened in Rome. And now we went to Geneva and we want to tell you about the next amazing thing that happened in Geneva. Just think conceptually for the early church, how encouraging it would have been to hear of these locations where there was no gospel witness and hear that God was planting and establishing churches. Excitement would have broke out in people's hearts all through the Roman Empire and all through Jerusalem thinking, look at our God. Fulfilling the Great Commission. Taking churches across the globe. Wow! What a God. Amazing. Don't miss the import of that, beloved. Verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, and had never walked. So this is not the first time that we're going to see a supernatural organic miracle where a person has an a illness or an abnormality that is so bad and so debilitating that everybody knows that medical doctors have hit their limit and are no longer able to help them, which proves it's a biblical miracle. Biblical miracles were instantaneous, organic, immediate, and there's something that the, the, the medical world could not account for. And so credit only had to be given to God, which affirmed the message. So God does a miracle. Notice verse 9. This man was listening to Paul. He's in Lystra now. Paul's speaking. And when he has fixed his gaze on him, he had seen that he had faith to be made well. This is amazing. Faith there to be made well. This is not um, prosperity preaching. How many of you guys have heard people say, well, that person's ill. If they only had enough faith, they'd be better. You guys heard that prosperity gospel? Yeah, that's satanic. Because there's lots of people with great faith who have illnesses their whole life and are very sick, even in the Bible. Timothy even had stomach issues and he had great faith. So it's not that issue. What he's saying is when Paul was preaching, he had the faith and believed that there was a God who saves and a God who heals and a God who's sovereign and a Christ who came. And when he heard Paul speaking, he entrusted himself to the gospel. And as a testimony to all around, God allowed a miracle to happen to this man to show not only his conversion and salvation, but a physical healing so that everyone would know God is among these men who are preaching. That's the faith that made him well. So notice what Paul says to him. Verse 10. Says with a, a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And don't you love the commentary here? He leapt. He didn't just kind of get up. It wasn't some cheesy healing like you sometimes see, um, you know, that people try and manufacture a day where it's this partial work, where maybe someone had a bad back and they kind of hobble off a little bit better. He leapt up after not being able to walk his whole life. Think about that. It was a miracle. Stand up on your feet and begin to walk. Beloved, if you ever, sometimes people will say about our ministry here, you know, um, you know Grace Emmanuel is um, cessationist, meaning they believe the sign gifts have ceased, which we'd say yes, and then they say Grace Emmanuel doesn't believe in miracles. You should say, oh no. Are you kidding? We believe miracles were active. Miracles were happening. Miracles were on the scene. And only God could get credit for those miracles. We just want to make sure that we, when we talk about the, the gift of healing in this miracle, that we put it in the biblical categories of something like this, where a lame man his whole life goes from never being able to walk to leaping up and jumping around before the people. 
And then if they say, well, if you believe the gift of miracles has ceased today, do you not believe in miracles? No, we pray all the time for miracles. We pray for healing. We pray for things to happen. And we see God do those miracles. We just don't believe this gift given to apostles is still active today. We could maybe spend a Sunday one morning and talk about the sign gifts a little more, and I'd love to beat that up with you guys a little bit. But that's not in this section. So let's keep moving. <laughs> Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in Lyconian language. You may have thought, what in the world is Lyconian language? Well, <laughs> the lingua franca, if anybody knows what that means, Jerry used it recently, I had to look it up. Um, I know what it means now. It's the common tongue. Thankful for that. The common tongue. Now you guys all learned lingua franca. How many of you didn't know what lingua franca meant? Thank you. See? Us sinners need to stick together. <laughs> lingua franca is the common tongue. The common tongue now was Greek. But a lot of these, these areas kept together a language that went back to their heritage. And so for these Lyconians, they had this, this native language. And notice what they say. After they witnessed this miracle... The gods have become like men and have come down to us. Verse 12. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was a chief speaker. Verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands at the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Beloved, just stop for a second. Just stop for a second. Just consider this and you can appreciate in a moment Paul's response. They're in this culture. They come to preach Christ. They want people to be saved. They wanted to know God and worship God and live for His glory. God does a miraculous miracle and instead of worshiping God, they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They call him Zeus. You say, what is that? Zeus was the sky father. He was the highest God, the gatherer of the clouds. He sends rain, thunder, and lightning. They are literally worshiping Paul like he's a God who has creative power. And then Hermes, he's the God who governs speech. They're calling Barnabas that. He's this great speaker and orator. You know what we're about to see? You want a conviction-building moment? I'm going to pull it right out here for you. True missionaries are terrified of false converts. True missionaries are terrified that they would make a false convert. Right now, they just came in to preach, a miracle was done, and there was a whole bunch of false conversions, and a whole bunch of people gathered to follow them, and Paul and Barnabas had this temptation right there, if they would have loved the approval of man, to have an entire following about them. True missionaries are terrified that they would have 1 Corinthians 2.5 happen where people's faith would rest on the wisdom of men, not on the power of God. Beloved, that is not always the case for pastors, preachers, missionaries. Remember sometime back, I, I watched a deal on Stephen Furtick, who is just a, I think he's a false teacher. And Stephen Furtick, how Elevation Church in, uh, is he in Raleigh? Raleigh, North Carolina, or Charlotte area there. He's in Charlotte. If you go watch this online, you can see how his church started. He came, and they talk about the prodigy Stephen Furtick and how amazing he is and how gifted he is and what this incredible guy. And all of a sudden, where you'd want to hear someone talk about Christ, you hear the name Stephen Furtick. And then how his church got started is they did an egg drop and dropped like a million eggs on Easter. 
and gave them away to people. And thousands of people came in the area to receive free eggs that were being dropped from a helicopter. And Elevation Church was born. And then they talked about Elevation Church as if it was this place, this mecca of godliness. And Stephen Furtick was this, was this guy who was basically a replacement for Christ. And you know what grieved me about it? I was listening to it and watching for what they were saying. And I thought, they are saying this is a move of God, but it was manufactured by men. They did an egg drop and they've raised up a man and said he's a demigod and talk about him like he's the Christ. And uh, thousands of people came because they got free eggs and they called it a church. They pointed and said, look what God did even though we manufactured it. That's the opposite of this. <laughs> Those are people who are happy with a whole bunch of false converts coming as long as they get their congregation, their people to follow them. Paul and Barnabas, opposite. Notice 14. When the Apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and they rushed into the crowd crying out. Beloved, tore robes, rushed into the people and started screaming, don't worship us, don't worship us, what are you doing? This isn't about us, this is about God's glory. Stop it! They were in, uh, tearing their robes, despair, grief, burden. Look what they said, 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature. We preach the gospel to you. That's why we're here. And look at what he says. We're calling you to turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Beloved, they told him, we came here to tell you to stop worshiping men and now you're worshiping us. Turn from that. You know, when you preach the gospel, people, that's what you're telling them. Turn from your worthless worship and worship a man and turn to God. Beloved, you know what grieves me? Sometimes in our hearts we do ministry in a subtle way and we achieve something and we accomplish something and we're actually okay with people worshiping us a little bit for our accomplishment. These men said, no. If anything about you think this is about us, you've missed it. Everything should be about the glory of God. Turn from this self-worship. And then notice he goes on, 16. In this generation gone by, he permitted all the nations to go in their ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. That he did, um, in that he gave uh, good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful season. This is Romans one language. Remember, these are people not in the synagogue now. These are people outside of the church that are coming to worship like their false gods. They're worshiping Paul and Barnabas. He satisfied your hearts with food and gladness, even saying these things with difficulty. They restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Beloved, they did everything they could to not make a false convert. You want a conviction? True missionaries that go, go out, and they want to see converts to Christ, not converts to themselves. Just by implication, you know what you could say about that? When a man's trained to go for missions, you better make sure he's crucifying fear of man and crushing his love for personal... Uh, significance, or he'll just sanitize it and baptize it and use people in missions. Use people in ministry. They said, no, no, that can't happen. Don't worship us, worship God. Notice 19. Remember that first conviction building moment I told you about? 
where hostility comes and it's guaranteed. Notice 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Notice, Jews came from Antioch. Do you guys remember how far I told you Antioch was? 90 miles. Remember I told you when people's hearts get convicted and they have guilt and they don't want to face themselves, they will stop at nothing until they silence you? Well, now you got people traveling 90 miles to take them down. Wow. And they gathered up with the Iconium Jews and they were after them. And having won over the crowds, these Jews, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This is one of my favorite points of all of Acts. <laughs> stoned Paul, drug him out to be dead, persecuted hostility. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city the next day and went on with Barnabas to Derby. Excuse me? <laughs> Can you imagine? They're there. Paul, are you okay? Are you okay, brother? <sighs> yeah, what happened? Uh, you got stoned? Uh, drug out of the city. Uh, people are angry from over 100 miles away. Just tried to kill you. <sighs> okay. Am I okay? I look okay? Okay, i got to go back to preach the gospel. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> true missionaries know true missions comes with hostility and they just want to preach and be faithful. So what did he do? Well, this, He went the next day with Barnabas and he went into Derby. Verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So just stop. Derby was a stop. We assume he did the same thing. True missionaries go. They're courageous. They crush fear of man. They love seeing the gospel go forth. And they just went and kept spreading the gospel. So now, what happens next? What's Paul going to do on his way home? He's going back to Antioch. Well, he's going to make sure there's healthy churches. This is your last conviction. And I'm running out of time, but that's okay. I'll be quick. Missions is not complete until there is a healthy church. True missions isn't done until there's a healthy church. Notice, 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, look at this. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then look at 23. Beloved, I don't care. You shouldn't care. If someone says they have a church and they're a part of a church, but they're not being led by calling qualified, gifted men. It may be a gathering of people that meet together and study the Bible, but it's not a church until men are established to lead the ministry. How do we know? 23. When they had appointed elders, they went back through and appointed men. That means they were in those churches for an extended period of time, testing the men, training the men, equipping the men. The church is affirming the men and elders were raised up. This is New Testament missions. You plant, you preach, you see souls saved, you see elders established, and now you have a church. Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord who had believed. 24, what do they do? Pass back through, pick up some more evangelism. They passed through Poseidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word of God in Perga, they went down to Adelaide, and then they started on their way home. Beloved, true missions... Mission has this conviction. Missions is not complete until there is a healthy church. That's missions. What happens next? The church they were sent by, they go back to. What is true missions? Here's your conviction. Missionaries return to their sending church to be strengthened. They start with the church, they end with the church. 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God. Remember, they were sent up by Antioch. Now they're back at Antioch. Beloved, are you a 27 and 28 believer? K-28. 
Okay, my discussion today was going to be on how we can all get our hearts behind the privilege of being in a church that's serious about missions. Well, guess what? Since we don't have time, just ask yourself, would you have fit in in Antioch? They came back. They heard of the power of the gospel, 27. When they had arrived and gathered together, they began to report all the things God had done and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with those disciples. Beloved, when the missionaries were coming back, they were excited, verse 27, they gathered, they were anxious to hear the report, and they spent a long time together worshiping God. So, let me ask you some questions. Our time's gone, but no one's at the... No, they're kind of at the door. We'll just we'll pretend they're not for a second. <laughs> Beloved, what does this mean for you and I? How should we think about this? How should you and I, when we think about we get the privilege to be at a church that's serious about missions, serious about seeing the gospel go forth. How should that affect you and I? Are we like Antioch? What should that do in our hearts? How do you guys think even in this room, you say, when I hear about missions like that, here's what I need that to ignite in my heart. What ought this to do? What do you think? How do you think, or even say, how would have it affected those other early churches and how should it affect my heart when I hear of this? What do you guys think? It's a reminder to cultivate humility in everything that you're doing. I love that answer. Jackson said here, Jackson. Jackson. <laughs> it's always a 50-50 shot. David Jackson, I got it. He said, it's always a reminder to cultivate humility. And I think by humility, you mean gratitude even, right? After 12, I mean, even the difference when, you know, Herod is being called a god and God uh, just smote him for it. And then Paul and Barnabas here, they with effort tried to restrain people from doing the same to them. Mm. Yeah, just the idea that we want everything to be about God's glory, not our own. <laughs> yeah. Our, let me, uh, we were at the elders. Um, this was, I was going to discuss this with you guys, but we can, we can talk about it more later. Talk about it over lunch. Mary, talk about it at your home group, what I'm about to say. Guys, go out to lunch and talk about this. Take this into your discussions. Being a part of missions and local church work should absolutely humble us. We're part of a miracle. God plants churches. God qualifies men. God gifts men. God gives them. When you show up on a Lord's Day, miracles are happening all around you. A conversation in the hallway where someone's edified and spiritually grows is a miracle. Churches being planted is a miracle. We've planted four churches from this church. Those are four miracles. At the elders retreat this weekend, we had a great time and Dr. Zemek gave a... a um, a devotional about the danger of pride in ministry. How you begin to think that ministry success is about you and not about what God's doing. And he warned us elders, which was great warning. And then in response to that, I get a text message on my phone from Todd. And Todd says, you should tweet this. So see, even pastors talk about tweeting. <laughs> he quoted what Jerry said in response to Doc. And I think it goes well with Acts 13 and 14 and what we get to be a part of at Grace Emmanuel, that it should absolutely floor us, flatten us, humble us, and ask God how we can be more grateful when we think we're a part of something like that. Jerry said this, If I don't emerge 
from a ministry moment, however small or large, stunned that God would use me, I'm in trouble. Beloved, when I read Acts 13 and 14 and I think that we get to be a part of ministry like that, it's stunning, but not enough. (laughs) I'm not stunned enough. I'm not like Paul and Barnabas. I don't always respond like Antioch. That is a problem in my heart that I'm not even grateful enough for what I get to be a part of here, so I'm not excited about more people getting to be a part of it. That's a hard issue for me and you. I encourage you today, when we go into Jerry's message, which I think is going to be about (laughs) self-righteousness, to ask God to reveal to you areas you're not grateful for the privilege of being at a healthy church with biblical missions. And if you're on those campus studies that we talked about that I started with, what a privilege that God would use you on a pagan campus. Do you thank Him that He even considered you not only worthy to be saved, which you're not worthy of, but He calls you worthy in His Son, but that then He would employ you to use you? What about in your family? What about your friends? Every time you get to open your Bible and give someone truth, it should shock you that you get to be a part of that. Something's wrong with our hearts when we don't respond with the excitement of these New Testament leaders. Something has become callous that needs to be repented of. And typically, we've just become too comfortable with the miracles God's doing. So I encourage you today, be more stunned that we get to be a part of this. I was stunned studying Acts 13 40 and deeply convicted how much I wasn't stunned enough. Let's pray. Lord, our time's gone. I want to be sensitive to the other class. Thankful for this group. May we be overwhelmed with repentant hearts but full of gratitude that you would use such unworthy slaves as us. When we sing this morning, may we sing more boldly because we're grateful. May we look at ministry as a privilege more rightly. And when we hear from Pastor Jerry, may our hearts be tenderized this morning to want to crush any self-righteousness that would keep us from gratitude. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.